Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, This show is picking up from our previous show in which we were talking about estate planning as it relates to divorce. Uh, Two things you don't normally associate, especially as you get older, but the reality is that for a variety of reasons, we know it's applicable to many of you, directly or indirectly. So we want to go over some of the key points to know if you've been divorced or you contemplate divorce or you're in divorce, uh, things to know that you should do regarding estate planning. Uh, Last show, we talked about some of the fundamentals. We talked about some of the issues that are raised, like before you file for divorce and even a little bit into divorce. But today we want to pick up where we left off last time. And we have Jill with us to act as uh, our anchor of the show. Yeah, I got a promotion. That's a lofty responsibility. Because I was playing hooky last time, remember? Yeah, that's right. So, so she's uh, so she's back though today, and and in an elevated role. So, um, do you want to lead the discussion as we pile into this? I would love to. We have Nina Windsor with us back, uh, managing attorney for Tucker Allen. Always good to have you. Thank you. I want to know: Is there um, a restriction on making changes until you are fully divorced? Not necessarily. And, you know, there's an old lawyer response. It depends. Um, It depends. It depends on what you're trying to do. So as um, we talked about a little bit last time, sometimes people walk into an office during a divorce, and it's all about gaining as much control as possible during a circumstance that otherwise you don't have very much control over. Um, So when you're walking in and you say, okay, well, I'm in the middle of this divorce and I'm starting to panic. I want to see which one of these assets that I have I can get excluded from from this divorce? What sort of protections can I have? Like, what things can I do? And asset-wise, as we discussed, there really isn't much you can do when a divorce is pending. In fact, a lot of the time, there's an order that's in place to say that the parties can't change beneficiary designations and they can't change the titling. It kind of of freezes things in place. Mm -hmm. It really does. Do you, either one of you, have you ever had clients ask you, you know, how do I hide this asset? Yes. You do? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I, I imagine you did. I mean, yes. Yes, the, the subject comes up regularly. Um, yes, and it's it's covered by attorney-client privilege, and usually you can uh, help people to kind of pivot. And so where, you know, where are we going to pivot that energy, that energy of like, I feel like I'm getting messed with, I feel like these things, you know, belong to me. And the overall concept of estate planning, you're talking about protecting the things that you've worked really hard for and protecting your loved ones. So there are things that you can do that fall in that category that are not just necessarily... Uh, changing the way your assets are, are titled in that time. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. You know, the easy ones right off the bat are going to be making sure that your 
pending ex-spouse is not your first person in line for purposes of being your power of attorney and okay. your health care power of attorney. And, and we needn't explain why. You know why. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't think that would be a good choice. So, you know, just, well, you know, and you've got the pull the plug document and things uh-huh. like that, you know. And if you don't have someone in place, though, you're thinking, okay, I need to make those changes. I've got those documents. What if you don't have those documents? If you don't have powers of attorney, Practically speaking, you know, is your soon-to-be ex-wife going to show up at the emergency room in the waiting room? I don't know. Your kids are going to be there. Is the physician going to come out and say, who's the spouse? Well, technically they are. And so from a practical perspective, the only person we've really seen, other than sometimes parents for kids who are on the cusp of, you know, being over 18, and that's not guaranteed either, the physician will sometimes defer to a family member for guidance. But it's not legally binding. And so if there is a default person and something happens when you're pending divorce, you're, um, if you're dating someone, they're not going to be it. Um, yeah. going to and say. your sibling probably isn't going to be it either. So if yeah, you the, still have a spouse, um, that may be the only person that the, the physician will talk to. Yeah, and what the courts look for is some sort of formal relationship. So like Nina's saying, you know, this could have been somebody that you've been with for many years. But if there's no legal relationship, then hospital officials and others tend to fall back on on some sort of family relative. Let me clarify, whenever we talk about these orders of protection, not orders of protection, you can tell me. I've been with Cordell and <laughs> that Cordell That could happen, though, in divorce <laughs> cases. Oh, hopefully, not, not in this case. But two things, whenever we talk about powers of attorney, there are two types. One relates to your health care, and that's kind of the subject that we're covering here. But also a power of attorney is the other thing, which relates to financial authority and general authorities in your affair. I'd say financial and legal authority, and then the other relates to your health care. Those are the powers of attorney that hopefully you have in effect right now. But as Nina's pointing out, if you're going through a divorce or you've just been through a divorce, you need to reconsider those documents. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's an easy thing to do. It's not very expensive. So if you have a situation where you're only supposed to be spending a certain amount and you want to say, okay, I'll get the rest of my documents in place after the divorce is finalized, that's totally fine. But look at your powers of attorney at least um, during that process. And if you don't have them, put some in place. You may have siblings that you want as your as your backup person, um, but you, what you don't want is one that's on file with any institutions. So in order to make one that is currently on file no longer active, you need to put a new one in place or you need to file a document that says you are revoking those powers of attorney. So if you have given a financial institution or a hospital any documents that are naming that soon-to-be ex-spouse as the first agent in line for you, you need to not only get the documents done, but then you need to contact those institutions and make sure you've either revoked or revoked and replaced them. So otherwise, they can go to that spouse, even though they're not divorced. Correct. All right. So we've got it about the power of this attorney, but let's talk about like guardians and uh 
trustees when it, when it comes especially to your kids? So this is another area where you're not necessarily going to already have documents in place and you're thinking, okay, why would I want, I don't even know what I have yet. <laughs> I may have very little by the time that I'm done with this divorce. Um, what do I do as far as other documents are concerned that have to do with my assets if I can't transfer them or retitle them right now? And so if you have a will, and we talked uh, briefly about this, how there's no joint will. So you may have a joint trust in place, but if you have a will, it's yours alone. And that will says who your personal representatives are going to be. Generally, it won't have language in it uh, that says that that person is excluded if you have a pending divorce action. And so because of that, your your ex-spouse or your soon-to-be mm-hmm. ex-spouse is the next, next person in line usually. They're also going to be the first person appointed as guardian because that's the document, not your trust. The will is the document where you say, hi, judge, I've passed away and the person I think is the most qualified to take care of any minor children or anybody that I had custody over. So you, as an older individual, you may have custody of a grandchild and we have seen that happen before. So this is right. something that can be I was relevant if you're a parent of a younger child or even if you're a grandparent of a younger child or, or you've adopted. So it's important. And also thinking about older and guardianships, it could be that because your the domestic relations case may pin for depending on the county, could be a couple years. When you're older, the chance that during a time frame like that, that somebody will become incompetent, that something will happen, whether it's a stroke, whatever it might be, thing, you're much more vulnerable as you get older. So there's a significant chance that the person on the other side of the table will be put in charge of your life. At least that is your, your official husband or wife while the case is pending. As you point out, there's been no right. formal change until the gavel goes down and you're divorced. So it Can you talk a little bit? Is that an application to what you're describing? Absolutely. So you really want to make sure, you know, this is that limbo period. Mm -hmm. We're talking about control. How much control do you have during this period where you're kind of floating between the two of the person, not really being a full spouse, but also not being in the eyes of the law, an ex-spouse? So if you're thinking, well, I really don't care for this person very much as far as being my spouse, but I don't think that they're a bad parent or a bad guardian. And so if something happens to me, I don't have any problem with them being the guardian of that child. That's totally fine. You know, we're not here to play anything other than devil's advocate, just making sure we're asking all of the questions. Um, If you do become concerned the estate planning attorney's office is one of the offices you should race to at that point. If it's not an imminent danger to the child, you know, that's fine. But if you have a custody arrangement going back and forth, but the document is something that isn't going to necessarily be binding on the court. If you put that person's name on there, it's it's pointing to the court that you have no reservations about this person having sole custody of this child going forward um, or adult ward or or anything of that nature. So anybody that you have responsibility for, you're saying if something happens to you, that your spouse can handle it. Now, if you're fine with that, you still may not be fine with having that person handle money if something happens to you and that being the person who says, oh, I'm going to submit something for reimbursement to this person's estate or I'm going to be the trustee of this minor child's trust to administer the money that was the life insurance from my ex-spouse. Very few people, even if they're okay with the custody issue, are okay with, yes, go ahead and pay the money for my minor child. When it comes to money, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and you should know that uh, Missouri is one of the states that 
bifurcates the roles of caregiving, sort of, or taking care of someone. So that we have a conservatorship where the court appoints someone who's in charge of the money, and then we have a guardianship, and they're in charge of the individual, the nurturing things and stuff. So two very different roles. Some states combine them, mm-hmm. but Missouri is separate. So as Nina's suggesting, one person you may entrust with one role but not the other. And again, think about this in the context, though, if a divorce is pending and, and one of you, one of the parties, has some sort of event, cardiac event or whatnot, and there's incapacity. This will be in front of a judge if if it if somebody is appointed, either a guardian or a conservative. They don't have to be. If you've taken care of the proper paperwork we talked about earlier, having these powers of attorney, if you do that properly, then you should be good to go. But, but still, uh, in the event that it does end up in front of a judge, as Nina, for the same reasoning that you're using, it's possible that a judge may appoint, you know, a soon-to-be ex-wife in a role, depending on what the testimony is in a role to continue taking care of you or you, her, if you're a guy, vice versa. So um, the important thing to think about is what what evidence do you want to leave regarding your desires and intent? And that's what Nina's talking to here as we're going down these lists is, is you're in a position now to make decisions, to heavily influence at least what those decisions would be later. And, and you could end up in a, in a strangely uncomfortable, unfavorable situation when you're in divorce and you've not thought about this. I have a question. Okay. When I was growing up, there was this older gentleman in my neighborhood, grew up in a very crazy neighborhood, and, and he was married to this lady, but they had been separated for years and she was living in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So we're talking two different states. How complicated could this be? And and are we would only the laws of the state of Missouri apply because that's where they were married and they resided? And I, I mean, how would that work? And this is common, isn't it? it? It is. It's actually very common for people to. I, I was working on a property case the other day, and the person said, oh, by the way, when we get done with this, we probably need to get me divorced. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, I th- we've already got like 17 heirs here to deal with on dividing this property. And by the way, um, and thank goodness she had the property before she had gotten married. So we didn't have to get a spousal waiver, but it could have hung the whole thing up. Um, So when you are separated, particularly if it is not a legal separation, just because you've made your own money, you have your own bank accounts, you equivocally have already separated all of your assets, you know, from each other. Um, If you don't have things in place that are formalizing that process. And this is, I mean, this is your area, Mr. Mm. Cornell, but seriously, no, there's no, we've decided we're divorced. So, <laughs> so um, I, I think they think that if, if you live long, far enough apart, part, long enough, it feels like it. then it expires. The marriage. Yeah, yeah. But it, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. And, and you, you even have a right in a divorce to take a compulsory share. It's called different things in different states. Mm-hmm. But it means that a spouse can either take what you actually give them, which in this case I suspect would be zero if you have a will, uh, in which case they can say, well, I think I'll take the spousal share. And the spousal share could be 40%. It goes varies in percentages based on a variety of factors. But the point is, 
it's a lot more than you want to give, I suspect. Mm-hmm. And and people don't realize that this will override any estate planning you do if you're still married and if Missouri law cover is still applicable, which it, it would be. And similar laws exist in, in virtually all the states. A, a nice catalyst is when somebody's all of a sudden doing better. Like maybe you guys were down and out. You weren't doing so great. Yeah. You got separated. And then all of a sudden your ship comes in. You've got a really great job. You won the lottery. And now you're like, hmm, probably should look at getting divorced uh-huh. now. It's too late. Um, yeah. you you're really going to pay a price. <laughs> yeah. And community property states assume oh, yeah. that anything earned during the marriage goes 50-50. Now, Equitable distribution states, which Missouri is one of those, that's the majority of states. But there are at least 10. Including Arizona. Yeah, yeah, 10, maybe 12, 13 community property states. But even an equitable distribution state will often do close to 50-50, depending on the facts. But if you're in a community property state, it's done. I mean, 50%. But community property state means something like together while you were married, you bought a house together. Is yeah, anything that, anything that either acquired during the marriage. During the marriage. Yeah, so you could... Your friend could be living in Arizona, or who was living in Arizona? In your uh, example, the, the wife, and and oh, and what ended up happening? The wife ended up coming back to him. I mean, they had been separated twenty years, and she moved back in, and he realized that this isn't what he wanted. He, you know, it's like, why did I miss her all these years? And he died like a year or two later. I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but yeah. So it was a crazy. That's story. a great story. Jill. It is. I know. So romantic. <laughs> did, did he have kids from another person? No, he, they had kids together. Together. Okay. And yeah. So, I mean, he probably didn't have very good estate planning. I don't think he did. I, don't uh, I would say he didn't have good planning. He didn't have any planning, planning in any in area place. of his life. No. So she probably. I mean, it would have gone forward as though they had lived together that entire time. Sure. Um, It would have been a worse hypothetical if she had, you know, he had passed away here in Missouri or more so that she had passed away in Arizona and hadn't wanted him to get anything you know, from that house because Arizona is a community property state. So, I mean, the probate would have been there and it would have applied things, things there. So, there's really a good reason to if you're not going to go ahead and get divorced which at that point I don't know why you would hold off on it yeah um, especially least... she had a boyfriend in Arizona too I oh, might yeah. add for a long time yeah he wasn't going to get that house mm. yeah and and I can say on a more general note here that despite Cordell and Cordell being the largest domestic relations firm in America uh, we d- we don't and certainly I don't advocate divorce meaning um you know, divorce is something that I know it's appropriate for some people, um, and 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 under those circumstances, the hardships and whatnot you go through are things that are kind of necessary under the circumstances. But I'm not gratuitous about talking about divorce. I guess I want to say, but I will say this: to the extent that that there isn't a marital relationship anymore of any sort, meaning um, the you don't communicate, you're living in separate places, you're kind of building your own lives, for people to just float along like that. I understand during a period when you're when they're trying to save the marriage. That that makes sense. So maybe there'll be a six month or so period. Right. But but like, what you describe is not uncommon where people Will, will go off and kind of do their own thing, thinking, well, I don't need to get divorced until I meet somebody that I want to marry. Then when I meet somebody that I want to marry, then I'll get divorced. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why incur the cost? 
But the the legal implications of that are huge. Yeah. And Nina is an authority on those. It's it's not divorce implications because you didn't get divorced. <laughs> right. It's the implications of not having gotten divorced, and and how they they result in somebody that you don't want having claims on much of what you've accumulated during your life. Potentially, you know, it depends on the facts. But it's a reckless way to to mm-hmm. live. Your, it's a failure to plan. And it's really unkind to any children as well, because it kind of puts them in the middle of things, because all of a sudden, the surviving spouse, because that's what we have to call them, has this control over the funds. Right. Um, And so if you want things to go directly to your children, or you want to put a bank in place to make sure that they're doling out the money, you do not want to have a probate with no trust that puts the money by court order in a custodian account where the remaining parent or guardian or conservator, depending on, you know, what the circumstances are, yeah. is your default person and they have this fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of this kid who has no idea what is going and on. And especially yeah. if the surviving spouse is a step parent to those children and they may not have a great relationship. Or, or, well, in this case, they probably would have had to have adopted them, but that you're right in the sense that there could be a situation where the remaining parent um, isn't the blood parent of those children. And, and just the right, though, of this, apart from these issues, which are more grave in many ways, still the fact that somebody can show up and take like 40% of your estate, even if you did prepare a will, even if you you thought well, even if you planned to some extent, if you failed to to take care of this piece of business, it's going to override a lot of your planning, and that's kind of the theme that that is governing much of what we've talked about today. Um, you had do, were we going to talk about trust before we move on? Do you want to start about um, after yeah. the divorce is finalized? Yeah, we'll move on to the outline. You can see that we spend a lot of time doing organization here. Actually, Jill. And Nina do spend more time doing organizing our discussion here than I do. So sometimes I take us off the off the uh, design path. But anyway, okay. So the question is, um, how do you advise a couple who has an estate plan together and are now getting a divorce? So let's talk about that topic for a few minutes. So if a set of clients, you have a couple that you've had come in before, and maybe they have a full joint trust package. They have powers of attorney, which we've already discussed, you know, making some changes to those, but they have a beautifully crafted joint trust that they assumed was going to maybe be amended over time, but was never going to go away. And they start panicking and saying, oh my goodness, like what's what's in this trust? What do we have that we, you know, we need to get out of the trust? Now I can't take anything out of the trust because I have a divorce pending. You may have uh, two people who are both panicking. It is important to know that if you went to a certain estate planning attorney, most likely that attorney will not be able to represent both of you when you have a pending litigation matter. That's a good point to make. Uh, I didn't know that. Okay. And, And so I have had couples come in for a consultation together but after meeting with them, and the other one just kind of showed up, uh, we, we figured out, oh, hey, this is a client that's been here before, and they're just worried about what's going on with their current plan, but they, they don't have a complete divorce. Um, so at that point, the attorney will most likely refer you each out to someone else. But you may be worried about the trust itself 
in a way that's disproportionate to what's actually going on. Because remember, during the funding process of a trust, unless this is a very old trust and everything is retitled in the name of the trust, you have your bank account, it says your trust name at the top of it. If it's just a trust where your assets are pointing towards the trust with beneficiary designations, then those assets are not actually in the trust yet, which means... Yeah, then go. Oh, well, I just want to, I like to, whenever I hear you use terms and I'm thinking somebody may not track with you. I'm guilty. Like, yeah, funding the trust is a phrase that that estate planners use commonly, but it just means kind of like what it sounds like. It means putting stuff in your trust. Once you've created this marvelous vehicle called a trust, then you put stuff in it. And and you're making the distinction, though, that sometimes rather than, than like putting a piece of real estate in it, sometimes a trust is created simply to have things sent to it the moment you die. For example, your life insurance will have the designation will be the name of the trust and your deferred compensation like a 401k, et cetera. So those things are are pointing toward the trust. So you create the trust so you can put those designations at the moment you pass away, no judge, no courts involved. It just immediately goes into the trust. So it's wonderfully smooth, uh, attorney fee free, and et cetera. So that, that plan though can obviously will change to the extent you and your wife have set up something and now you're getting divorced. And if we could back up a minute. Okay. You said that if there a divorce is pending, then you can no longer represent them, even it's, though it's a conflict of interest. It is. Can you represent one of them if one decides to bail out and go to somebody else? Tricky. Or? It's tricky. Tricky. Yeah. So you can get a waiver, and I have done that post divorce, where somebody was like, "I'm not coming back and, and you know updating my plan," and the other person was like, "But I really want to, and I really want to have the same firm that handled it before." So I have a waiver that I can have. It's very explicit, uh, but I have a waiver that can be signed by one spouse so that we can represent the other one post litigation. If there is something pending between the two parties, there's almost really no waiver that there can you know that there can be. So at that point, they may not be doing their full estate planning while the divorce is pending, but they may want to revoke the trust. They may may both be uh, unhappy with the terms and the possibility that that trust would control if something happened to either one of them during the pendency of the divorce. So if they each have an attorney, and this sounds expensive, it's not that expensive because the actual revocation process is really just one document. So it should not cost you that much money to go find an attorney. You both consult with an attorney and then get a document that you can both sign saying that the trust is revoked. Um, And Mm -hmm. each of your attorneys will review that document depending on who prepares it. And at that point, that trust no longer exists for the remainder of your divorce. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't put another trust in place and decide what your terms are and say, never, ever, ever am I going to have this person be, you know, the trustee for one of my kids. And here are the people that I want to act as my trustee. And here are the pets that I want taken care of. And, you know, all of those things. You can get very detailed. But just remember, you're not going to be able to point all of your assets, you know, when we were talking about the funding, you're not really going to be able to fund that trust until the gavel goes down and uh, the judge allows for those assets to be redirected. And something to keep in mind, too, um, and this is, I'm wearing my former divorce lawyer hat, we're kind of making the assumption that we're talking about a revocable trust here. And that that for 98% of people who do estate planning, 98% probably at least, they are revocable trusts. 
And revocable trusts in, under the law of Missouri now are regarded largely as a state planning device, as kind of a, a, a phrase that's used as a testamentary device, like a like a will. So the law regards it that way. And, and fortunately, its implications for you know, for divorce court, for what's marital property and what's not, you know, was there when somebody changed titles to something and put it in somebody's revocable trust, one spouse versus the other. Sometimes rather than having a joint revocable trust, you'll have two. So those don't, you don't have to worry about those having implications, at least in any cases that I've read, where any divorce court has regarded that as anything more than a state planning, unless there's some additional document accompanying with it, because you you know, you could do a a post-divorce or a, a, a planning of some sort of property division, um, which you could do after you marry as well as before. So you have prenups and postnups. But I want to at least acknowledge to those of you who may have irrevocable trusts that those may have implications. I mean, if it's if it's done, you know, with uh, with a sort of carefulness that that many do and it relates to qualifying for tax benefits often sometimes asset protection but both those things would seem to indicate an intention to make a bona fide transfer where you'd say okay this is our pile of assets and we're going to create an irrevocable trust for the wife and we're going to create one for the husband so you you put them in this thing in which you officially say and sign an affidavit, essentially, that that it was your intention, that you owned it and you put it in that trust. Same thing for the other spouse. And under those circumstances, um, it could very well mean that you've changed, you've converted something that was marital property into maybe something that was separate, like a post-nup, a post-nuptial agreement. And, and that's just something I'll introduce for the small percentage of you that did that sort of planning uh, during the course of your marriage, and maybe you're older now, maybe you're over 60 and there's a possibility of a divorce, you need to bring in, in addition to your divorce lawyer, maybe your estate planning lawyer too, uh, to talk about the implications of that planning. So, well, we can move on to the next topic. Most people that won't apply to, but... No, but it's a really good point to say, oh, you think that your situation's simple. If these things do apply to you, your situation is just probably not simple, and you need really qualified representation to navigate it. But for, you know, the other larger percentage of people that we were talking about with a revocable trust, you know, the answer is no, you can't have an agreement. You guys are having an amicable... Amicable divorce. We hear that many times. Um, at least in the, for the time being, you can't decide. Oh, hey, we'd like to both, you know, mm-hmm. uh, get along and not have to pay for a new trust. You're not. It has spousal provisions all over it. You're going to need to revoke that trust, and you're going to need to prepare your own trust, unless you have some sort of um, reconvening during that divorce process and decide not to get divorced. You will need your own trust, your own revocable trust. So we're talking about once the divorce is finalized, there's been property settlement, Mm -hmm. they will have to start from scratch. Right. And they can start getting that trust in place. They just can't put their assets in it because we need to make sure that we're coordinating. And we talk a lot about coordination here. We want to probably coordinate with their divorce attorney if it's mid-divorce and make sure we're not doing anything. And and I went through this actually a couple weeks ago. Um, On our side, that's going to go against a current uh, court order or just the advice of their divorce attorney. Okay. So what sort of things uh, can be in that divorce decree that, you know, relate to the estate plan? Are we t- we're talking pro- mainly real estate, uh, bank accounts? 
I'll kick that to okay, you. Okay, it's, um, you know, it's funny that uh, a lot of clients don't think about their estate planning provisions like that during the course of the divorce, um, in part because they're exhausted financially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, of course, you have a divorce lawyers, too, that are taking care of this. But to the extent, though, that, that there have been in place irrevocable trusts, then there should be some experts involved, including a tax attorney, as well as a, a, uh, an estate planning attorney, and so that, that the settlement agreement, if it is a settlement agreement, and most are, even if there's litigation, often they ends up being a settlement. The alternative to that is a judge's decree, which, again, typically the judge will ask one of the parties to prepare the proposed decree. And, and of course, the other side can look at that and object to the extent they think it's not what the court intended. So you end up with this document, whether it's a settlement agreement or it's a court's decree in which the attorneys participated in creating, your attorney participated in creating. So in that case, you want to be sure that they captured all the issues that you thought were important and anything that there's any doubt about, especially regarding irrevocable trusts. Those are those often become problems after the divorce. The other as we've talked about, revocable trusts, you know, you don't need to fear these as being steps that you're taking that could have ominous, um, difficult-to-change uh, effect on your future. And that's the wonderful thing about revocable trusts is they accomplish so much, but they're so easily undone, And as Nina pointed out. So it, as far as the decree itself, I think that that simply assuring that any trust that there's provision made, any irrevocable trust that provisions made. I'm trying to think if there's any other issues. Life insurance. Yeah, life insurance. Policies. There are things that are sometimes in the divorce decree, and people will come in and ask about if I have this obligation per my divorce decree to have this policy that goes to this person. Can I do it through my trust? Oh, that's Um, an interesting thing. So. so uh, on the issue of life insurance, it is an asset, and, and typically if it has cash value, then of course it, it's an asset that you can, you can look at on a balance sheet. So historically, only permanent insurance fit that description, and, and in other words, cash value. So it was the only thing that was typically logged during the course of a divorce when you disclose in the inventory all the assets, and that's what the court divides. So the court would divide you know, life insurance. And even the person who's not the insured, uh, that doesn't have to be the person that owns the policy. So it could be either one of the spouses that would own the policy in the aftermath. So that would get divided. And then uh, you need to think about whether anything wants to be changed regarding your beneficiary provision. If there's a spouse, though, then there's maintenance ordered, then often the court will think about life insurance policies. But it's interesting. There was a Supreme Court case in Missouri that came down that actually reversed the case where a judge required a husband to keep life in, ex-husband to keep life insurance in effect for his death um, so that there'd be money available if he died for a wife to whom he was paying maintenance. And the Supreme Court of Missouri said, no, that's unconstitutional. It's requiring him to pay a debt after he's dead. So it's interesting reasoning. That is interesting. It's interesting reasoning. Yeah. So now that has to be approached differently. But also now, even if there is no cash value, um, there's value. I mean, these you can sell life insurance policies and even term policies. Right. It, depending on the person's age and condition, 
uh, it may be a good investment for a third party to buy that policy. Or educational funds sometimes um, sure. are spe- specified as to like what something's going to go to. So if you have a minor child at the time, there could be certain things and restrictions. And again, you're wanting to make sure who's the person in charge, um, who's the payee on these different beneficiary designations. You may be able to contemplate it through your trust. And, and uh, let me also get back to your point, Nina, about life insurance. Uh, it, it, it can be, I guess, a big deal. I don't think about it as as readily uh, and as as a state planner as I did as a divorce lawyer, but but I can see where if someone has developed a plan where a key ingredient of it, one of the parties, is the life insurance, and, and often that is that's the only liquidity they're going to have to avoid a, a business, for example, that they own. They probably were awarded the business in the divorce if they were the one who created it and ran it, and the other party was credited in some form for their interest in that business. But then the question becomes, when they die, how do they pay taxes and other issues? So there's lots of reasons you want liquidity when you die. So life insurance is a huge, huge issue. But maybe that person can no longer get that insurance. So in that case, you know, a key component of your estate plan hinges upon you know, that party getting that policy. So they would actually, in the negotiations, the divorce lawyer needs to know this. And a lot of divorce lawyers may not know this mm-hmm. because the client may not know it. <laughs> may not know right. because they, they just know that they hire a really smart estate planning lawyer <laughs> and the estate planning lawyer took care of everything. So that estate planning lawyer is on the sidelines here and the client and even the divorce lawyer may not know how important that that de- that component is. So, and this is a case where the divorce lawyer should suggest to the client that look, if we're dealing with a a million dollars value here, we want to give them one point one million to get it because it's worth that to you. So, and that that's a case where you trade a premium for an asset where it's kind of a win win because that asset to you is worth more than its face value because you can't get anything close to it right now due to your condition. All right. I I have a question. Suppose you have a couple that during their divorce, they make no changes to their estate plan. The divorce is finalized. One of those, the spouse, one of those spouses dies. Will the other spouse get any of those assets, even though they're divorced? So that is definitely a concern. Um, many states, so we, and you know, I'm going to hit you with that. It depends. It depends. Again, uh, but most states have an exclusion. So you've gotten, you lived long enough to get divorced. You got that final decree. Right. If you pass away after that and your will or your trust does make a distribution to your ex-spouse at the time of your passing, that will normally be excluded based on the law. So that there's public policy there on that. And, and so there'll be a state law. It's not a federal law, but there'll be a state law that would exclude them from recovering at that point. So what what happens when somebody's excluded, usually that share that they would have gotten is evenly distributed over the remaining beneficiaries. Most likely in this case, you know, your kid. So the ex-spouse is not entitled. Uh, well, yeah, there there is a statute that, as Nina's saying, that, that would apply to, I think it applies to wills and revocable trusts, that if you fail to make a change, that, that the court will assume that that person had died, had predeceased you. Um, so in an, the, the legislature is trying to provide you some protection in the event that you fail to do planning after your divorce to change your estate planning. But that has a lot of holes in it. 
Do you want to talk about some of the shortcomings? Well, it may have to do with the way things are distributed. And again, there's other issues if you have, for example, a retirement asset that has that person's name on it, but it's not denoted as a spouse. Um, So making sure all of your beneficiary designations have been changed, even if you hadn't changed your, you know, actual estate planning documents is important to make sure your spouse, your ex-spouse is not number one. But then you also have the concern that maybe they're not getting the money, but they can also have the fiduciary role to which you've appointed them, which is not necessarily covered by that statute. Mm. So they may not be entitled to anything, so they're bitter, and now they're your number one person next in line to handle everything. And and there's a similar thing for what's called non-probate transfers, too, but it doesn't come into effect while a divorce is pending, and you may still have named that person, as Nina pointed out, for other roles. Um, So... The bottom line is you don't want to count on uh, the legislature to protect you for a, the results of your inaction if you don't do anything after a divorce to 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 create new estate planning. And we're consistent in our approach here. Our biggest priority is to keep people out of litigation. So if you're thinking about, oh, this person's the next in line, you know, usually somebody has to challenge that in order for it to be enforced that this person isn't recovering. You know, a bank won't necessarily do that for you and say, oh, looks like, you know, you were no longer married. So you want to make sure that you have your ducks in a row because putting that on your remaining family members to be in a position where they have to say, wait a minute, this isn't the way things are supposed to go. Right. That really does mean court involvement. And that's what we're trying to avoid here overall. We've covered a lot of ground. We certainly have. Uh, We could easily have done another show on this topic, but we'll stop. We'll circle back, though, on this topic. Those of you who have no interest in this topic, you'll sigh of relief that we're not going to do a third episode. (laughs) We'll find something more uh, uplifting. More more uplifting and more broadly applicable. But we knew that there, though, I've I've always felt, even when we chose this topic, that it was going to be applicable to a minority of you. So we knew that. But we thought it was really applicable to that minority, meaning that we thought you'd really benefit from it. So um, we decided to do the topic. So this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit tuckerallen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.